So we're going to continue on in our sermon series on the book of Colossians. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 16 through 23. Um, and I want to go ahead and invite Shelly Merritt. She's going to come up and read for us this morning. If you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word as we turn our attention to it this morning. So Shelly, I'll pass it off to you. Good morning, church family. Today's text is Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord for us. You may be seated. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Father, we come before you this morning uh, again to just acknowledge that in the next few moments we are placing ourselves underneath your word. We are your people, your sons and daughters. Um, Father, for those who are not your sons and daughters, who have not yet placed faith in Jesus, um, we're still, all of us are underneath your word. And so we come to listen, we come to hear, we come to not just hear, but then seek to apply and to do these things and walk in faithfulness to these things. And so, Father, ask that your spirit would be present with us this morning. We know that your spirit has to do the work in us. That it's not because I, I've got good words or eloquent words that can do anything, but Father, we rely and depend upon your Spirit. So please have your way with us as your people this morning. Even for those who may not know you, we pray that your Spirit would work in them and, and open eyes to see the truths, the glories, the beauty of you in your word. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, again, just want to thank David and uh, Lewis for taking the pulpit the past few weeks. I thought I should come up here and test the pulpit to see if B uh, David booby-trapped it for me. Um, I think it's okay, though. Um, but uh, uh, excited to jump back into the book of Colossians. And I want to start off with uh, something that may seem a little bit strange for you, but I think it actually can help us kind of in the direction for this morning. I don't know how many of you have ever seen uh, the movie Creed. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. It's okay. Uh, but Creed is uh, one of the many, many movies that come in the line of Rocky Balboa. I don't know how many of them there are, like 17 or 18. Um, man just can't stay out of the ring. But nonetheless, Creed is a movie about Adonis Creed, who is the son of Apollo Creed, which if you know the stories, he is uh, the, the boxer with the American flag um, shorts who gets killed in the ring in one of the Rocky movies. And later, Adonis Creed, his son, comes up, and he now starts to train with Rocky Balboa. And in the second movie, Creed, the movie begins with all of these really gritty and kind of dark images of this boxer that's training. And you don't know who this boxer is, but you just see this massive, 
hulk of a man just training and he's in the ring and he's beating people up and going down and you're like, wow, what is going on and, and what's going to happen? And you learn that this is Victor Drago, the son of the very man who killed his father. And, and you know, I say that because a lot of movies begin in this kind of a way where they kind of highlight and show you the villain, the antagonist of the movie, because they, they want to help us to understand the weight of what's about to happen, the, the challenge that the hero of the movie is going to have to face, or uh, what is at stake for the movie as you watch it and what's going to go on. And what I'm going to do today is very similar with that. Like, I'm going to spend some time highlighting the villain of this text. And you may say, well, what is the villain of this text? Well, I'm going to help us to see that. But this is an important part because we enter into Colossians 2, 16 through 33, and there's a danger that is being addressed very specifically by Paul. Now, before I get to the danger, here, here's what will help us get to that space. You might remember last week David talking about ledgers. If you remember, that's a great analogy of how we find our salvation. So if you think of the ledgers, it's, there's images of these up on the screen, I believe. It's the idea that when we think of our accounting or accounts, there's on the left side is your debts, and on the, uh, well, I guess it's my right side is your debts, and the left side is your assets, uh, whichever way you see that, the pluses and the minuses, all right? So when we think about what happens in the gospel is for us as people, we've got all of these debts on one side. David did a great job explaining this, and that through the gospel, that what happens is our debt is put upon Jesus. And so all of those negatives that are in our account, you see over there on that top image, they shift over to Jesus's, leaving our account empty in that sense. But then there's a second great, what David said last week, imputation that happens to us as believers, right? And what happens then is that Jesus's righteousness, all of his righteous deeds are then also put upon our account as assets. And so what happens in the gospel is that we find freedom because we recognize that all of our debt is taken care of and we now bear the righteousness of Jesus, which none of us gained and none of us actually brought about in our own lives. But the danger comes for us in this, that oftentimes what happens is as we begin to live out of these things and we begin to live out of the truth of the gospel and the freedom that is there, that a real thing begins to take place. And I illustrate it this way, is that as you live the Christian life, you begin to believe oftentimes that you continue to add things into your ledger. So as you fail, as you sin, you go, oh no, like I've now added something new to debt and I've got to deal with that. Or the other thing that can happen is we begin to believe that we can add to this side. In other words, that, that we can add to the righteousness that we've already been given in Jesus. The righteousness is already ours. And so what can happen is that we begin to think, well, okay, I need to add to the righteousness of Jesus. It's not just Jesus that's dependent upon, but now I need to maintain that righteousness. And I see my debts, and I see that, okay, as I keep falling, we, we struggle to abide and trust in Jesus' sufficiency to take care of all of those things. This is a danger that can come into play for all of us. This is the danger that Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 2. This is the villain of the story, and this is where I want to start. This is the danger of trying to add to the ledger card. In short, what is at stake for us, and what Paul reminds us of, is imprisonment and in slavery again. Jesus saves us, 
He delivers us. He redeems us. But there's a danger of us imprisoning ourselves and enslaving ourselves back again to some of these ideas. And this is what is happening in Colossae. Some of the people of the church, good Christian people, are being deluded as they fall prey back into this idea. Ideas are coming in that are pulling away people from freedom in Jesus Christ. And as we look at these things, as we've already said, these are not always obvious. In fact, most of the time, they look attractive. They look religious. They look good, even wise. But they are dangerous. When we come to it, and when they come in, they promise to lead us to freedom, but they ultimately lead us to imprisonment. Peter was dealing with some of the very same things in his letter, second letter that he wrote. I want to read this in 2 Peter, verse 19 through 20. He says this, They promise freedom. And he's talking about false teachers and false prophets coming into the church who are promising freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, oftentimes, I'm going to pause. We hear that, and we simply think about our sin. So Jesus delivers us, and so maybe you're addicted to alcohol, and you engage in alcohol, and then Jesus delivers you, and if you go back to alcohol, then now you are enslaved. Now, that's absolutely partially true, but it's bigger than that. There's other things that are potentially there to enslave us. And he goes on to say, For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, this should be scary for us. None of us want to be in a worse state off than we were when we first came to meet Jesus. Now, the root of this danger for us is found in verse 20 of the text that we read, where Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? So the, the danger is this idea of these elemental spirits that are coming back in to the life of the church and enslaving them. Now, what are these elemental spirits? I want to put it this way. They're the elemental promises of freedom. The idea of elemental spirits or the elemental principles that you run across in scriptures, like that is not a simple concept. And there's a lot of different views on what is being referred to here and other places that this is used throughout the scripture. The Greek word that's used is stoikon. And to the Greek worder, reader of the day, they would have taken that to mean the most basic, fundamental, foundational elements of the world we live in. Now, sometimes that's spiritual, and sometimes it's just what's basic and natural to us. So think instinct, those things that we just react out of. Like when you've got kids, they do certain things. It's just born into them. No one has to teach them those things, right? Someone takes something, they hit them because that's just their instinct. This is part of what Paul is referring to. These foundational things that are so much a part of that they're like elemental spirits. Specifically, I believe that these elemental spirits that Paul is referring to are our most fundamental efforts to be made right to be justified, a way for us to deal with our ledger cards without the work of Jesus. Every single person, believer and non-believer, needs to be justified. Everyone wants to be justified. You don't believe me? 
go to anybody in the world and disagree with them about something they're doing in their life. And what do they do? Do they just go, oh, you know what? It's okay that you think something different than me. Well, you think your thing and I think my thing. That is not what happens. They demand and begin to defend that you affirm what they actually think. Because in their minds, even if they are refusing to acknowledge it, they have to justify their right. We all do it, right? Like when you're accused of something, you have to justify your right. When you do something wrong, you've got to justify why that was the right decision. Like ingrained in all of us is this deep desire to make ourselves right in front of other people around us and ultimately to God. Even if you refuse to acknowledge him, if you want to know that there's a judge, you can see this base instinct in all of us. And we all know at the deepest part of us, in our spirits, that someday we will stand before a judge. We all will. And so we all want to be justified. And what's happening here in the text, and what's happening in Colossae, is that they saw their justification come in Jesus, but they're being tempted to fall back into some of this base desire to justify themselves to be justified in other things. Let me give you some examples of how these elemental spirits work out in our day, in our age, with non-believers first, and then we're going to come back around and look at what and how this sneaks itself into the church, how it sneaks itself into our lives, specifically in verses 16 through 19. But with non-believers, it starts to creep in too. It's there. Think of atheists, for example. What is an atheist? An atheist would tell you that they are looking to find freedom. They want to find freedom from shame and guilt. They may not tell you that, but they feel that. They feel it, and so their effort to do that is to get rid of the thing that causes them guilt and shame, right? And so they feel that, and they go, well, you know, what we're going to just do is say there's no such thing as right and wrong, and there's no such thing as a standard of right and wrong because there's no God that can make us accountable to that. And so their way of dealing with justification is to remove God completely. Like, he just doesn't exist. And so if there's no standard for right and wrong, there's no accountability for right and wrong, there's no authority to tell us right and wrong, then I can be free to do whatever I want. But let me ask a question. Does that bring freedom in the life of an atheist? It doesn't. It becomes enslaving. And how does it become enslaving? Well, it becomes enslaving in a lot of different ways. One, it sends us into moral anarchy, doesn't it? Because how can we ever say to anybody that they're right or wrong in any action that they have? Right? If I'm just a random clump of cells in my life and nothing matters in my decision making, what makes it any more wrong to murder somebody than mow my grass? And so they get enslaved to this logical inconsistency in their own world where they can have no basis for what's good or bad or what's right or wrong, and they'll want to declare something like racism to be bad, but they have no foundation to claim that it's bad. None. And so they become enslaved to this kind of circular thinking. They become enslaved to just this idea that there is no right. There is no wrong. This inevitably leads us to things like genocide and injustices and the only law that is around is just whatever law is in your particular society. But ultimately, 
What really comes to pass is it's the strong who survive and the weak don't. And ultimate enslavement comes to selfishness, to purposelessness, to hopelessness. Like they're doing the very thing that we all want to do. They're trying to deal with their shame. Their goal is to just tear the ledger card up. They just want to tear the ledger card up and say there isn't one. But there's also the postmoderns. What's a postmodernist? What do they do? Well, they believe that material isn't important at all. That truth is simply made by you. The elemental spirit is the promise that they are ultimately free. They're ultimately free from any kind of shame, any kind of what's right or wrong, because you get to decide what is right and wrong. The postmodern person makes themselves the standard for what is right. There is no connection to anything outside of them or anything in reality. But this enslaves the postmodernists to a constant chasing after truth that cannot be had because we're fickle, we are unstable. What is inside of us is not stable. Not to mention the fact that you're enslaved with this constant nagging reality that you can't control everything around you. Think about the transgender. You can pretend all day long that what's real in me, what's right in me, is for me to become a woman. And I can do everything I want to try to make that to be the case. But no matter what I do, there will always be the nagging reality that me, as a biological male, can never have a baby. Just as one example. And so they're enslaved to this nagging sense that it's always coming after them. They're always going to be found out in the lie. But what they do is they say that I'm justified because the only thing that's right is what's inside. And so it promises freedom. If you just give way to what's inside, you'll find freedom. But what they find is slavery in the end. Enslaved by the winds of feeling, enslaved to confusion, enslaved to the consumption of whatever feels good in this never-ending pursuit of what's inside of me. But there's also religion. Every religion, all religions outside of Christianity, promise freedom from fear of judgment to be made right by simply abiding by the rule. Whatever the rule is, whatever the law is of that religion, whether it's Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or any of those others, there's a certain set of standards. And if you want to be made right, you need to abide by those sets of standards. And so what do they do? They try to obey the law. So here's the thing. This is the elemental spirit. Again, we want to be made right. So think about all of this. Think about it in terms of the ledger card again. We all want to be made right. The, the atheist type of non-believer, they just tear the ledger card up. The postmodernists, what they do is they look at the debts on their ledger card, and instead of them dealing with the debts, they try to turn their debts into what is right. So they turn their wrongs into what is right. For the religious person, they look at their ledger card and they see that they keep adding the minuses on their ledger card. And so they go, you know what I need to do? I need to add more pluses on the asset side so that in the end, they're going to be balanced out so that I can be free from fear and shame in the hopes that I can do more good things than bad things. And so I can be justified. The point of this is that every single person is trying to find a way to be made right to find freedom. This is elemental. It's an elemental part of us all. The desperate control to have say over our ledger card. 
These elemental spirits, these elemental principles are part of every single person. And without care, they will sneak their way back into the lives of believers. So let's see how this happens for believers. The first way we see starts in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. So how does this start to sneak its way back into the church? When people start to pass judgment upon you. What's happening in Colossae? That people are looking at other people within the church and passing judgment on them in regards to whether or not they're in Christ or outside of Christ. So how does that play itself out? They say, well, we know that you know Jesus, but, and that's the thing here, right? There's, there's a but. You have to do these things and not do these things to continue to maintain your place in Jesus to continue to maintain your status in Jesus. And if you don't do these things, or if you do do these things, then that's evidence that you are not a Christian at all. See, they heard the promise of freedom. They had received the truth about their sins being nailed to the cross, their entire record of death being nailed to the cross like David talked about last week. But they were beginning to listen to the lies that no, real freedom Real confidence comes from doing this or doing that. Not eating this, not eating that, not touching this, not touching that. This is so deceptive because it's part of who we all are. And it's attractive in our hearts to think that we can maintain our freedom. To think that salvation is dependent upon us just a little bit. Just a little bit. Even if we'd never say it out loud. If I say faithful, if I stay faithful, he's going to be happy with me. If I don't, then maybe I'll be lost. How can you know if you're beginning to submit back to this way of thinking? Well, we can know by examining ourselves. Let me ask a question. and this, You don't need to answer this. Just answer it in your own hearts. When in your life, are you most confident to go to the Father? When are you most confident in your life to pray? When are you most confident in your life to pick up the Word of God? When are you most confident to step out in faith? When are you most confident to proclaim Jesus to a non-believer? If your answer, even at the tiniest level, is to say that most of my confidence or I'm most confident on the days where I nailed it, you're starting to believe this lie. If at any level you balance your confidence with how good you've done, you have begun to believe that at some level you can maintain your own righteousness, and you can't. And that's enslavement. It's enslaving to start thinking that we can do that and to begin to live our lives that way. To think that, man, I can go to the Lord on my good days. I can trust the Lord to work through me on my good days. But man, if it's a bad day, like I just don't feel like I can do that. You're depending upon your goodness to come to the Father, not Jesus' righteousness. I remember as a kid hearing, as I grew up in the church, and this wasn't something my parents said. I don't really remember who specifically said it. I don't know if it was just one of those things you kind of gain by growing up in the church. But at some level, I can remember when the discussion about sin coming, came up, that I was told, or at least encouraged to think that, hey, if you're doing this thing or that thing, 
and Jesus returns, is that how you want to be found? And I kind of understand what they were saying. I, I do understand that what they're thinking about is just wanting to keep in mind that Jesus is present and we don't want to do that. But what easily starts to come is, is that, oh no, if I'm doing this thing or that thing when Jesus returns, he might leave me behind. He might leave me behind. And maybe it's because that was when that whole series came out and, and as I was growing up and I just kind of had that mindset and that fear anyway at some level. But I kind of started to think that, okay, if I'm doing this and Jesus comes back, then he'll be mad at me. I grew, my, my wife grew up and she remembers being taught in certain spaces that if you uh, got in a car accident after uh, you cussed and you hadn't confessed that to the Lord, then you could be in danger. Like this is the idea that starts to creep in and we begin to be enslaved by fear. And that is not what Jesus wanted for us. Temptation comes to simply try then to listen to all the good religious people and to do what they tell me to do so that I can be confident. I think that subconsciously, we do this all the time. Good Christians do this. Good Christians don't do that. And if you do do those things or you don't, then you must not be a good Christian. So what we start to do is live again underneath slavery. Slavery to fear of judgment. What if I'm not really saved after all? Our rightness, as David said last week, has nothing to do with what we do or do not do. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. The law only enslaves us to something that is absolutely unattainable. This is exactly the point of Acts chapter 13. Verse 38 through 39 says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, being Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you by everyone, or, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We're freed from that which the law couldn't free us. The law couldn't free us from our guilt. It only increased our guilt because we're not capable of obeying it fully. So don't submit to it again. Don't try to earn what has been given to you by Jesus. This is Paul's warning. Abide in the work of him taking your debts and nailing them to the cross and taking the righteousness of Jesus and counting it to you. Not just when you're doing good, but even when you're doing bad so that you can be freed. See, it's an interesting thing because the law, for example, would tell you, don't commit adultery. Jesus would also tell you, don't commit adultery. But the law would say, don't commit adultery or else this will happen. It's a motivation of fear. Jesus says, don't commit adultery because this is life and because I love you and because I know it's best for you. And so the motivation changes. We obey Jesus out of promise, not based on fear. And what was happening so much, even in the days of the, Col the Colossian church, was that they were beginning to fear, well, I've got to do these things. Second thing that we see in the scripture that Paul warns us about is asceticism creeping in. And you might say, what in the world does that even mean? It means believing that everything good and pleasurable in this world needs to be rejected. The only thing that's good is spiritual. 
See, the elemental spirit here is that you can find confidence and freedom and rightness before God if you completely reject everything in the world that is around you. And this might look good. It looks religious. It looks wise. People that do this look like they're the uber-religious of the church. But is this really what we've been called to do? In essence, oftentimes what this calls us to do is to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Give you an example. I mentioned watching a movie. I mentioned Creed. Now, as a family, we see that there's a lot of things in a movie like that that's not good. But we also believe, as a family, that there is good in seeing stories of humanity and stories of honor and stories of sacrifice and stories of work and and what can come from that. And so what we seek to do is we use filtering services to clean out and take out the bad things that displease the Lord so we can still engage in the good things that build us up. But oftentimes we just say, I'm going to get rid of everything I'm going to get rid of everything. Cello music isn't Christian. It's not secular. This would be someone who says, I'm not even going to listen to cello music unless it's amazing grace. No, no, cello music is beautiful because it's cello music. Well, some of you may disagree, but nonetheless, I think that. But the the temptation is, is to say, because I want to find myself good before the Lord, I'm going to get rid of all of it. And my confidence then becomes based on how much I get rid of. Now, in honesty... I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I don't think this is a huge problem with the church. I don't see very many people doing this. I think we go the other direction, which is just as bad, where we say, I trust in Jesus so much, I can do anything I want. This is cheap grace, and it is not what God has called us to. And it is not living according to understanding and believing that God knows what is best for us, but simply to follow, and we'll get to that later. But the third thing that Paul warns against in this regard to elemental spirits, is the pursuit of the supernatural. It's to say that I have confidence, I have freedom, because I have had this religious experience. So what was happening in the church in Colossae was people were coming into the church and they were saying, I am the super spiritual and I clearly am right with God because I've seen visions and I've seen angels and I've had these spiritual experiences. And so they were saying, if you're a really good Christian, you'll have these things. And if you haven't had these things, then you're probably not a Christian. And so it made people start to worry and say, oh no, like to be right, to have confidence, I've got to start pursuing these supernatural experiences. You say that never happens in the church. And yet, There are places, there are areas within church that say things like, you know, real Christians, they speak in tongues. And if you've never spoken in tongues, then you probably don't even have the Spirit of God in you, and you should doubt your salvation. This is exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same idea that's taking place. Real Christians, they feel this way when these songs are sung. Real Christians have this happen to them or that happen to them or they experience certain spiritual things. And so what happens is they begin to pursue the experience of the supernatural so that they can find justification. I know I have Jesus because I feel this way, because I experienced this, because I had a dream, because I had a vision, because I feel like the Spirit spoke to me in this particular way. Paul would say no. You know you are made right because if you have confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that he raised from the dead and that he took your sins and nailed them to the cross and gave you his righteousness, that and that alone is where your confidence comes from. 
in no experience. You need no experience. And if we start chasing the supernatural experiences, then we start to trust in the wrong things. These things seem so plausible to us. seem so natural to us. They appear so religious. But our justification comes only in Christ. Now, I want to lead us to hope because that's where Paul leads us to. It leads me to my final point, which is that we are to die to the elemental and to be free. And not just, not just free in some theoretical sense, but to be free for freedom's sake. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He has set you free, so walk with him in true freedom from guilt and shame and addiction and sin and brokenness. He did the work. I heard a story one time, and I honestly don't know if it's a true story. I looked for it again, and I couldn't find it, so I don't know where I heard this story. But I'm going to share it anyway because I think it illustrates a phenomenal point in regards to what this idea of freedom for freedom's sake looks like and how Christ has done it. But the story goes this way. Back in the, the slave days of the early Americas, there was a, a moment where uh, someone saw a man came up to uh, an auction block and he saw a, a line of slaves. And there was a one particular slave that was on this auction block and he was yelling and screaming and he was spitting upon the slave owners. And this man looks at him and he says, that's the one that I want. And he purchases this slave. And so he takes the slave and brings him down off of the block and he's got his iron shackles on his wrists and on his ankles. And the man begins to lead him away. And all the while, the man's struggling, he's spitting upon him, he's yelling on him, he's cursing at him, and rightfully so, because what that whole thing is so wicked. And, he, and the man takes all of that abuse and then leads him into an alley in the street, and he comes up to the man, and he begins to unlock his shackles. And he stands back and he says, I bought you so that I could set you free. And the slave looked at him and realized that he had been spitting on the one who had sought to redeem, that he had been fighting against the one who was trying to save. And the story goes that he then fell down and said, like, I, I want to follow you. I, I just want to be by you because of what you've done, because he saw the man as so good. And here's the thing about this. is so often for us as Christians, we've done the same thing. We're being redeemed. We're being delivered. And we're fighting and we're fighting and we're even spitting upon our Redeemer. And when we finally come to realize the great salvation that he's brought, the grace and the mercy that he's brought, and we're standing there with our shackles down on the ground, we begin to start putting the shackles back on our hands again, trying to earn the freedom he's already given to us. So let me, let me, let me serve you, let me be your slave, let me, let me try to earn what you've already granted to me, and so we then enslave ourselves while he's saying, no, no, I freed you to be free. I freed you to be free, not to go back to these things where you had to, to trust in your own abilities to be right before God. And I think we can so quickly slide into this stuff, the very same thing that was happening in the first century church. Jesus freed us, 
not so that we would put the shackles back onto our hands and feet, trying to earn our freedom that he has given us. And out of love, we are to say, I want to follow you. I don't want to go back there and try to maintain my freedom. I don't want to go back out into the world and try to maintain my freedom, try to keep myself from going back into the shackles again, only to find that's exactly what would happen if we leave the side of our Savior. This is why it's so important when Jesus says, abide in my love. Don't ever leave my love. Rest in my love. Rest in the work that I have done for you. Don't ever try to add to any of it because you can't. And to try to add to it will only enslave And I believe many Christians walk throughout life without the confidence. They walk throughout life without freedom, never feeling good enough. Always feeling like judgment is right around the corner. Never finding the joy of truly understanding that all of your debt has been paid. All of it. Not just what you've done up to this point in your life, but everything you're going to do until the day you meet him has been paid. And all of Jesus' righteousness has been put upon us. So Paul then gives us an encouragement. In verse 19, he tells us to hold fast then to the head the only one who can make us right, the only one who grants us freedom from empty promises. He is the only one that can lead us out of our slavery. So hold fast, church. Hold fast to the one judge. You know why you don't need to care about any human judgment? Because the only one that matters is him. There's only one real judge. There's only one real judge that matters, and he has declared you righteous in faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. So if someone else comes to you and starts to say, well, I don't think you're a good Christian because you don't dress this way or you don't dress that way or you don't say this or you don't do this or you don't read your Bible this way or you don't read your Bible that way or you you haven't had this spiritual experience, you can literally say, I don't care about your judgment at all because I know my position before the only judge that matters. So church, hold fast to the one judge. There is no other judge. Now, I want to be clear, if someone who is also underneath Christ comes to you and shows you something that the Lord has commanded you to do, that is not judgment, that is mercy, that is grace, and he's showing you something that will bring life to you. So don't reject that. If the Lord uses a brother or sister to come and to bring to mind the sin that you're engaged in or to to bring conviction in your life over a sin that you're engaged in, then Don't worry about their judgment, but worry about the life that Jesus decides and wants to lead you into. So hold fast to your one judge and hold fast to the one way. It's only his way that matters. And it's a way of beauty. It's a way of life. It's a way of fulfillment. It's a way of purpose. It is not always a way that means everything will go perfectly for us in this world. We don't follow personalities. We don't follow traditions. We don't follow a tribe. We follow him. Where he leads, we will follow. What he tells us to do, we will do. 
because we believe he is going to lead us to life and freedom. This is really important because when Jesus gives us something as simple as don't get drunk, black and white, it's not because he's putting a, 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 a restriction on us just to put restrictions on us. He's saying there's no freedom there. There's no satisfaction there. There's no life there. It will only lead to your suffering. And so our following of Jesus is a trust, a faith that he knows what's best for us. So we hold fast to one judge, we hold fast to one way, and we hold fast to one joy. He is the fullness of joy, and in his presence is the fullness of joy. This world has a lot of other joys, a lot of other good things, but none of them, none of them are as good as him. In fact, all of them are a substance, they're a shadow of the substance. He is the substance. So hold fast to one judge, hold fast to one way, hold fast to one joy, and hold fast to one pursuit. Don't pursue experiences. Don't pursue your own righteousness. Don't pursue any of those. Pursue Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Think of the work Jesus has done. Your hope is in Jesus, nothing else. So pursue Jesus. Not a feeling, not a blessing, not that he'll fix this or fix that. Pursue Jesus alone because Jesus is the gift. Jesus is our hope. And it doesn't matter if someone comes along and tries to get you to pursue something else, if it has Jesus-y language, if it's leading you away from looking to him as your primary pursuit, be very cautious. And that's exactly what was happening. So church, hold fast to one judge, hold fast to one way, hold fast to the one joy, and hold fast to the one pursuit. And finally, be watchful. Die to these elemental things. These things are hard to spot because they're so foundational. They're so much a part of us and our sinfulness. And we so want to make ourselves right. We want to hold our salvation in our hands. And the enemy knows it. And so he's going to send all kinds of heresies and false teachers into the church to try to get us to trust in our righteousness, to trust in our own way of justifying ourselves. And some of us, I know in this room, are under the crushing weight of that. Where you believed in Jesus and you believed that he saved you, but somewhere along the line... You started to feel the weight of your continued sin and your own sin in your own life and you started to doubt. You started to think, well, man, if I just do enough and I just am good enough, then I can find confidence. No, no, you find confidence because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient. So I want to close this morning and as we close this morning, here's the, the things that I want to lead us to. First and foremost, if you have begun in any way, shape, or form, to try to find your confidence in anything outside of the completed work of Jesus Christ. Come back to him. Confess it. Acknowledge it. 
recognize it and say, God, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to add to your righteousness. I'm trying to add to the work you've already done, and it's enslaving me. Because, church, you can find freedom, and you can find joy. And there is a tremendous joy in trusting only in the completed work of Jesus Christ. If you're in this space and you've been one of those people that have been heaping judgments upon others, saying, if you do this and if you don't do that, then you're a Christian. Then you too need to confess. Because we are not to be the judges of people. Yes, lead them to the scriptures. Yes, lead people to the conviction of sin. Yes, do that. But let's not add our own opinions upon those things. Let's not add our own traditions, our own things upon that stuff. That's exactly what was happening in the Colossian church, and it's what's happened throughout the church of the ages. This is what will make you a good Christian. And if you found yourself in that space, repent of that. Repent of it. And finally, if you're in this space this morning and you simply find that you're still a slave... You're a slave to fear. And you're a slave to constant feeling like you're not matching up. That you're never going to meet the expectations of God. I'm simply here to tell you, you can't and you won't. And you weren't meant to. And there is a freedom to be found in Jesus Christ. That Jesus has paid that price for us. And we're going to pray here in a moment and then we're going to take communion but I want to encourage you this morning if that's you and you have not come to a place where you can say I am free today can be that day for you let me pray Father as we close our time I think it's really easy for us to hear these types of things and look at everybody else and not ourselves. But I think the truth of the matter is that most of us at some point have struggled to truly trust and abide in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. That at some point, we've thought, man, this is too good to be true that he would take all of my sin and that he would give me all of his righteousness. And I think most of us at some point would have felt that feeling that I've got to stay. I've got to stay holy. I've got to keep myself holy. I've got to keep myself in the right. I've got to maintain this grace that has been given. And we, we are tempted to add to it. And Father, we just declare this morning that is not the gospel. And I pray, Father, for anyone this morning that is suffering under that weight, that you would free them from it this day. Anyone who has a joyless Salvation, constantly feeling like a failure, constantly feeling like they're not good enough, constantly feeling like they'll never measure up. Lord, that you 
would deliver them today. She would free them today to find that they never will be. But Jesus is sufficient. Your son is sufficient. Father, I pray for any in this space that might have brought these things unintentionally into the church, into our lives, where we have judged or we have sought after other things, Lord, that you would help us to repent of these things. And I pray, Father, this morning for those that are in this space that don't know you. Father, I pray that you would help them open their eyes to their enslavement. I pray that you would help them to open up their eyes to see the weight of their own sin and their weight of their guilt and the weight of their shame. And I pray, Father, that they would see the glorious, gracious offering that you have given to us through faith in Jesus.